Today's scripture reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. This is God's word. You may be seated. Inside of the bulletin, you'll find not just a, an order of worship, but also beside it an, an outline that you could use as we go through this text that Josh has just read for us. It's uh, an important text about understanding the discipleship that Jesus calls us to. And uh, before we tackle uh, a big subject like that, we're going to uh, go once again to our Father and ask Him to bless us and to give us discernment and wisdom as it pertains to this text. Father, You are great. We are at times dazzled by the the loving kindness and graciousness that not only you show us every day, but especially show us in the life of Jesus. We also, Father, are stunned at times to know that human beings like us who have been saved at such awful cost are the same human beings that you call into the ministry of your kingdom to make the gospel known throughout all the world so that the world is filled with a knowledge of your presence and to give you glory. And so as we endeavor to do that this morning, Father, by by looking at this passage, we pray as we always do that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear in order to understand and discern and to make sense and to be courageous in making application of changes and transformation and being renovated by your Spirit, Father, to be the kind of people that bring glory to you in this world. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I want to begin with a, with a question this morning. Uh, up on the screen, you'll see a picture of a store called Lululemon. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. It may be Lululemon. I've never been there. But what my question is this. What is the difference between Lululemon, which is uh, a yoga clothing store, or yoga outfitters, what is the difference between that store and a yoga studio? And the answer is, in one, you look like you do yoga, and in the other, you do yoga. To me, this illustrates a concern uh, that Jesus has, the Messiah has, when it comes to the kingdom of God and exterior appearances and interior realities. When you go to the life of Jesus, and we'll look at a couple of passages in Matthew, one of the things that you see is that over and over and over again, he, he, he stresses the importance of those interior realities. Go to the sermon the very beginning of his ministry, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, up there on the seashore of the Sea of Galilee, not far from Capernaum, 
He says, the, the, you know, those things that are known to us as the Beatitudes. And, and right there towards the end of the Beatitudes, he says, you know, if you want to be a blessed son of God, then you have to be pure in what? Heart. A little bit later, at the end of that chapter, he says, he says, you've heard that it was said to the men of old, you should not, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, you shouldn't even be angry in your heart because that's where murder begins. Right after that, he says sort of the same thing, but this time it's about committing adultery. He says, you've heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, don't even lust in your heart because that's the very place where adultery begins. In Matthew chapter 12, just seven chapters later, he says, here's, here's the deal about living in the kingdom. You need to make the tree good or make the tree bad. If the tree is good on the inside, you don't have to worry about the fruit. The fruit's going to be great because good things come from a good heart and evil things come out of an evil heart. In Matthew chapter 15, he's, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 29. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In Matthew chapter 22, as uh, this religious leader comes up to him and says, you know, when you look at all of the laws and the commands and all of the examples and the stories of the Old Testament, what does it boil down to? And Jesus says to him, it boils down to this. You love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all, with all of your mind. And then in Matthew chapter 23, He's in that last week of his life. Uh, that entire chapter is, is his encounter in the last week of his life before his crucifixion with the Pharisees. And, and the Pharisees are going to try and kill Jesus. But Jesus, in a last-ditch effort, is going to try and get these men who have murderous, angry intentions in their heart to repent and to recognize that the kingdom of God has come near to them. And he says to them, Look at your own life. He says, you look like a, a, a tomb, a whitewashed tomb. You look beautiful and cleaned up on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones and death and, and decay. He says to them, you, you're so worried about all of these rituals, uh, uh, purity rituals. You should be concerned about the inside of the cup and not just the outside. From, from Christ's own lips, there is more to living in the kingdom than just getting your sins forgiven. A fellow that in our own time has been very concerned about this and has really been exercised until his death about 2013, 2014, about, about disciples being made in our modern era, was a fellow by the name of Dallas Willard. In an article that he wrote about discipleship some years ago, he says there's absolutely nothing in what Jesus himself or his early followers taught that suggests you can decide just to enjoy forgiveness at Jesus' expense and then have nothing more to do with him. It's basically coming out of the waters of baptism and rejoicing that sins have been forgiven and then saying, Jesus, I'll see you at the pearly gates. Forgiveness and discipleship go hand in hand in Christianity. What Jesus and Western culture teach about the fulfilled life 
and the meaningful life could not be more at odds with each other. I remember back in the early 1980s, I was listening to a sociologist and a Christian by the name of Tony Campalo talk about uh, you know, uh, life in our society. And he said, you know, I've lived long enough that you know, I kind of came of age in the 1960s, and I, I see how you know, people are trying to discover themselves. And Dr. Campalo said, one of the things in the 1960s that was very vogue and very popular was that people would use this phrase, I've got to discover myself. I've got to go and find myself. And it was never at home that you found yourself. It was always someplace else you had to travel to. Campalo said in the 1960s, it was mainly California. And he said, here's the thing, though, to think about when it comes to that idea of finding yourself in that way. What if human beings are really onions? And as you begin to peel away all of those layers like people were doing in the 1960s, what if like an onion you get down to the center of peeling all those layers of humanity away and you find that there's not really anything? That the self is something that is to be recreated. In our contemporary society, it's basically the same thing, although it's been tweaked a little bit. In our, our own time, it's you got to find the thing that really makes you happy. Your deepest core desires, figure out what that is, and then do them, fulfill those things, and then everything is going to be great. The only problem is, is that that can be a pretty messy process. I mean, how do you define a deep core desire? And on top of that, a lot of times in that messy process, there's a wake of destruction and disaster that, that, that follows it. What Jesus taught was completely different. It was, it was completely counterintuitive to what we encounter in our own culture. In this text that Josh read for us, beginning in verse 24, he says, whoever wants to save their life will what? Say it together. It's important. They will what? Lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will what? Save it. What good is it to gain the entire world, the whole world, and yet lose or forfeit their very self. Maybe the issue has a little bit to do with trust. Do we trust Jesus to know what he's talking about when it comes to what a great life looks like? Going to that same article that Dallas Willard wrote about, you know, there's nothing in the teaching of Jesus or his followers that would ever hint or suggest that there is this forgiveness of sin and that you don't need Jesus anymore after that. In the same article, he says, when you stop to think of it, How could one actually trust him, speaking of Jesus, for forgiveness of sins while not trusting him for much more than that? You can't trust him without believing that he was right about everything and that he alone has the key to every aspect of our lives here on earth. But if you believe that, you will naturally want to stay just as close to him as you can in every aspect of your life. And again, this is what Jesus does in Luke chapter 9. If you go to verse 46, you have those disciples who at times are so beautiful, your eyes just tear up. They, They get it. And they're faithful, and they're courageous, and they love. And then there are other times that just cause you to scratch your head, and and you wonder, what in the world are they thinking? In verse 46, they're arguing over who is going to be the greatest. So the ancient world and the modern worlds are not all that different, are they? And so what Jesus does when he he sees what they're arguing over is he gives them an image to think about, an image I don't think they'll ever forget. 
He gives them a visual to remember. And what he does is they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest. And he has a child come and to stand beside him. And he makes them look at him and the child. All of the disciples of Jesus are, are like this child standing next to Jesus. And the point that Jesus, one of the points that Jesus is making is that how foolish is it to argue over who's the greatest when you're standing next to the greatest or walking in the footsteps of the greatest? But it was also an image of, of trust. Think about all of the pictures of, of children and good parents together. The, the sitting on laps, the standing at sides, the standing on the lap with the arm around the neck, both looking at each other, the love and the child knowing, this is a human being that I trust. They recognize that this is a person that I should trust. And in this passage that calls for us to trust Jesus when it comes to understanding what life is all about, he gives us three entry points into discipleship. He says in verse 23, whoever wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. He gives those three entry points. You deny something, you pick up something every day, and you follow someone. Let's start with that first one, denying of self. When a person begins to live as a disciple of Jesus, they discover, as they, they listen with different kinds of ears and with a different kind of heart and a different kind of mind, they, they begin to discover, they discern that there is a radical reorientation of priorities. At the, at the end of this chapter, beginning with about verse, verse 57 going down to verse 62, there is an encounter with Jesus and his disciples with three men. Man number one comes up to Jesus and he says, you know what, Jesus? I love you. I will go with you wherever you want. I will follow you wherever you go. Now, that's the right thing to say, right? I mean, we wouldn't have a problem with that. It's the right direction. It's the right word. seems like the right attitude. But Jesus detects that there's something behind those words that's not quite kosher. And so he says to the guy, well, think about this. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. What he's doing is causing that guy to stop for just a minute and to think again about the kind of life that it takes to follow as a disciple Jesus the Messiah. He's saying it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to realize the kind of life that you're committing yourself to. Do you understand that it can be a, a hard life at times? Well, he goes on a little bit further. He runs into man number two and he says to that guy, follow me. And man number two says, Lord, let me, what? First. Follow me. Okay, but let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus says something kind of cryptic. Sounds a little bit harsh. Let the dead bury the dead. It does sound harsh. A little bit. Until we begin to think about what's being said. This man's father is still alive or he would already be about the business of burying his father. And then on top of that, he says, let the dead bury the dead. What in the world does that mean? How does, how does a dead person bury a dead person unless the first dead person that he's re referencing is not physically dead? Let the spiritually dead bury the dead. But the spiritually alive 
prioritize the kingdom of God in their life. And then man number three comes up to Jesus and he says, I will follow you everywhere, but, and here's this word again, but first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for service in the kingdom. Plowing in the day of Jesus involved uh, plowing through fields that a lot of times had stones hidden underneath, just like we find today, but they were doing it with hand plows and it was being pulled. And and if if you looked around and you became distracted by other things, you might run that plow into a rock and break your plow. And then you're really, really behind. And Jesus says, it says, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for service in the kingdom. Along these lines, Jesus says a little bit later in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 14, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sister, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Again, it looks so harsh. But here's the thing. It's not meant to be taken literally. It's meant to be taken relatively. And God is the creator of the marriage. He's creator of families and these kinds of things. But what Jesus is trying to say is that the love for him, the commitment to him, your, your connection to him has to be so profound and singular and exhaustive in its scope and so great that it makes all of the other loves in your heart, in your life, look like hate. You know, I was blessed and privileged in my life to have two great fathers. I had my my own physical father, and I had my father-in-law. And when my father-in-law, Doyle, was uh, as, as a young man, was graduating from high school in Fort Worth, he was one of the best golfers in the state of Texas. And And being from Fort Worth, he became associated with Byron Nelson, who at that time was in his heyday as the greatest golfer on the planet. And Byron being an older man and Doyle being a younger man, there was kind of a, a relationship that was being kindled there. There was a little bit of mentoring. Doyle and Byron Nelson, my father-in-law, Ellen's father, and Byron Nelson played golf together twice. Doyle beat Byron Nelson in one round, and Byron Nelson beat him in the other. And because Doyle was so good, a natural athlete, I mean, even when he was in his 70s and still playing golf, he had this swing that just looked like magic. And, and Byron Nelson encouraged Doyle to play golf professionally. He said, you're good enough to make it in the PGA Tour. You're going to win some money. There's going to be some fame and some fortune for you. But at that time, my father-in-law Doyle was growing in his faith. And he was, he was learning what it meant to follow Jesus of Nazareth. And there was a call from God that was coming into his heart that he obeyed. And that call was to go to Africa as a missionary. And he gave up fame and he gave up fortune and he lived among villages. Uh, The country of Zimbabwe that is uh, in the middle of a coup right now. Uh, My wife, uh, her family, her mother and father, her siblings, Uh, grew up in that country during the Civil War of the late 1970s. My little old wife lived through mortar attacks. He gave up fame and fortune and lived among villages and in different nations and in different countries and because the Messiah, Jesus, became his priority. And he gave it up. Everything else. 
To deny self means that you have a new priority in your life. It means that Christ is at the center of a disciple's life. Now chances are you're not going to be called to Africa or South America or to Asia. But if Christ is your Savior, then He is your Lord and He is the priority at your work, in your home, at play, in all relationships, all of our resources in our emotional life. And at the beginning of life as a disciple of Jesus, it means that priorities are beginning to be reoriented in your life. Which brings us to the second thing. It's about picking up a cross daily. Now, we've all heard this. Uh, Someone shares uh, a bit of a heartache, sometimes a really profound, genuinely deep heartache. There's an illness, problems on the job, problems in the marriage, troubles with the kids, financial setbacks. And they say something along these lines, well, I shouldn't complain because we all have our crosses to bear. And that, that is true in the sense that adversity is always a tough thing to bear. It's always a tough thing to bear. And at times... These, these moments of pain and sorrow and grief and adversity and trouble, it feels like we're being crucified. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Right before he tells the disciples that there is this life that they need to pick up, take up daily, that they need to pick up their own cross, he tells them about his own. And he says to them, beginning in verse 22, the Son of Man is going to suffer a lot of things. The Son of Man's going to suffer many things. And not only that, there's going to be rejection. The people that should know Him, the people that have His DNA, spiritually speaking, the people that should recognize through Scripture the Messiah, they are going to be the ones that reject Him. And then He says thirdly, and He, the Son of Man, talking about Himself, must, must, meaning there's no way out of this, must be killed, but He's going to be raised on the third day. Now, in that short little synopsis of, of, uh, of, of you know, Jesus' life, what Jesus is doing is giving them the plan. That there are going to be some painful things, there are going to be some very hard things, hard, hard things, things that are going to be hard to handle at times. And those things are going to become before a great thing, which is the resurrection. And with it, the utter transformation of the universe. Now, one of the things, if you read the Bible all the time, you you begin to see that the Bible is very realistic about the degree of difficulty for the kingdom of God to come into the world. And for for that, that kingdom of God to come into the world, it was difficult for Jesus. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus in the garden, he prays to take the cup away, the cup of wrath, the cup of judgment. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he sees what it is that he is facing in his death. He prays to take the cup away, but he prays, not my will, but your will be done. In other words, Jesus realizes that it was not going to be about him. It was going to be about the will of God, but he was, literally going, he was literally going to have to die for the will of God to be done and the blessing of God to come into the lives of others. And he says to his disciples every day, this is the kind of life you take up. 
If the mission of God is to be done in the world, then disciples have to pick up their crosses too. It means that disciples die to self daily for God's will to be done in the world. We understand that it is not about our will, but God's will being done. And then finally, and we're done, follow Jesus. One of the great names attached to Luke chapter 9, and sometimes we miss it because we, you know, the way we read Scripture a lot of time is uh, it, it's, it's, it's really more just snippets of it than just drinking in the entire chapter. But in Luke chapter 9, Elijah shows up all over the place. Herod the Tetrarch thinks that Jesus might be Elijah because that's the rumor that's going around. He's very perplexed about all of that. To the question that Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? One of the answers is, some think you're Elijah. Same chapter, we have the Mount of Transfiguration. And who is it that shows up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? It's Moses and who? Elijah. As they are going into a Samaritan village... And, and Jesus has sent his disciples ahead to, to make everything ready. The Samaritan village says, you're not welcome. They reject Jesus. And James and John want to call down fire and destroy the village because of the rejection of Jesus, who is the Son of God. In fact, in some of your Bibles, there's a textual variant that says, you want us to call down fire and destroy this village just like Elijah. And that fire is a reference to the judgment on the priests of Baal and Asherah. This village, like so many other places in their world and in our world, reject the Messiah. And James and John, man, they're really dedicated. They are all in when it comes to the Messiah. James and John are really dedicated to Christ, and they want to destroy this village. I mean, how dare you reject the Son of Man? Jesus We'll do it. We'll pull the trigger. That's called down fire and judgment. And then Jesus does the weirdest thing. So counterintuitive, it, it just hits us in the face when we see it. He rebukes them. And they move on. Why does he rebuke them? Those disciples thought that they were following Jesus but they were actually in their hearts following Elijah. The example of the Messiah in the Garden of Gethsemane, while everyone else is trying to defend Jesus with the sword, Jesus commands that they stop. And what does he do to, with that ear that had been lopped off by a sword? He puts it back on the head. <laughs> where the ear to the one that you know it belongs to and heals him when when jesus who is the wisest and the smartest i mean he created the heavens and the earth for goodness sake when when they are reviling him and mocking him and taunting him and lying against him he doesn't say anything when the nails are being hammered into his hands and into his feet he asked God to forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. The kingdom of God is really about opposites, is it not? The first shall be what? Last. The greatest will be as one who serves. Sometimes we don't think about this one, but it's one of the great opposites of the kingdom. By his wounds, we are healed. 
and to a church in Rome that is having to deal with the, the, the strength of empire and the Roman army. And he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. One of the hardest things for a disciple of Jesus to do is to follow Jesus into those places where with every inch of our being and with our thoughts and our mind and our strength and our, our impulses and everything else that makes up a human being, we want to do what is about us. But the kingdom of God was built on people who understood that it was not about them. It was not about their will, but God's will. And recognizing that the world is fallen and at times horrible and ugly and, and that human beings are fallen and that the only thing that gets the human heart and the human soul and the human body and the human mind out of the ditch and onto the plane where it's supposed to exist is by the will of God and the sacrifice of Jesus of Nazareth. We are here because he did not do his will regardless of the cost. We are not a church about ourselves. It's not about us. When it comes to being a church, we serve each other and we encourage each other and we admonish each other and we sing to each other and, and we, we do all of the things that are needed for us to keep on track towards God. But we are also a church that ushers the kingdom of God into the community of San Antonio and every place outside of it to the ends of the earth. That's what it means to be a disciple. It means be a disciple and go into the world making disciples by helping them to uncover that forgiveness of sin that is only found when they put their faith in the Christ and their sins are washed away in baptism. Of repentance and saying, my life is no longer going to be about my life because when it's about my life, I run it right into a wall. I run it into a ditch, and I run it into other people. But to be a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth means that I have repented, and there are new priorities in my life. And I follow Jesus because Jesus promised that as I went into the world as his disciple, he was going with me. Lo, I'm with you until the very end of the age. And that's what it means, my friends, to follow the Messiah. It's not to do what he would never in a million years do himself. But to be a disciple of Jesus means that we follow him step by step, step by step, to the places where he leads us, representing him, people that understand it's not about them, a, a people with reoriented priorities, people who understand that if, if God's will is going to be done on the earth, it will mean at times tough things and hard things. And understanding that for all of life, I'm following Jesus, which means that I've surrendered my will to him, and he is going to become my will, and he's going to become what I look like in this life. I guess I'm done preaching. And we're going to sing a song, and this is an opportunity for us to just say to God, we're in. It's also an opportunity while we're singing the song, a couple of our shepherds will be down here at the front, and if there are ways that we might minister to you, pray with you, pray for you. 
help introduce you through the gospel to the Messiah and through the Messiah to God to become his child. Then we want you to come down to the front as we sing this song and let these shepherds know it. Let's stand and let's praise God. I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day. Still pray he has I on. 